Good morning. Marty and I are excited to be here. We are really thrilled at what God has been doing. We don't have time to explain all the things he's done behind the scenes to make this a, a possibility, but we are just excited, uh, not only because there's great weather here down in southern Iowa, uh, but because uh, uh, we have just uh, been thrilled to think about how God can use the 30-plus years of pastoral ministry and the uh, 15 years of of consulting uh, experience and training uh, to come alongside you folks and help you at this very, very exciting and necessary time. So we're, we're thrilled to be able to do it. On another note, uh, we've been in about 46 different churches over the last year, and uh, it is ex- exciting also to consider the fact that we might be able to worship with the same dear folk for more than just one Sunday. Now, with that being said, we won't be here next Sunday, okay? <laughs> Uh, the uh, uh, Brother Callison will be down from the camp, and he'll be uh, right behind this podium to share with you. But we will be up in Cedar Rapids at a place called Blair Ridge Baptist Church. And some of you may know a Pastor Troy Wigert, uh, but Pastor Troy was the individual who was given the responsibility of following me at that church for where we pastored for seven years. So we are giving him a break so he can go on vacation and share uh, with his, his folks there and some of our dear friends there in Cedar Rapids next week. So we'll miss you then, uh, but then anticipate being back with you right after that. Uh, we want to uh, begin our time together with prayer and then look at this whole concept of be a disciple, make a disciple, and what following actually entails. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being able to join our new friends. I have forgotten more names than I can remember right now, uh, just from this morning. But we look forward to the next few months that you'll have us uh, uh, laboring together. We cultivate these friendships as we seek to uh, mutually arm, uh, iron sharpening iron, and uh, we experience your grace and your mercy together, and we look forward to what you have planned for this church. Uh, Lord, this is a church that has a great impact, uh, in not only in this community, but all through this state, and uh, probably emanates beyond my, my And so, Father, we are excited about uh, the steps that they're taking to be able to ensure that they are, are, are moving forward in a significant fashion, and we thank you that you have honored us to be a part of it. We ask, Lord, that uh, you would guide and direct our time together as we're talking about a very simple concept, but yet one that seems to fall through the cracks on a regular basis as we find ourselves active and busy in church, but we find ourselves not necessarily developing disciples at the rate or in the way in which we should. And so, Father, as we look at the simplicity of those first disciples as they were uh, connected to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, may we catch the enthusiasm, may we catch the intensity, uh, the intentionality that is a part of helping others be followers And I pray, God, that you would uh, encourage our hearts, but that you would also convict our hearts that we need to be a part of this, and we need to see what you're doing and be be actively involved. And we ask this in, in Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, our big idea today is following. Now, 
when I was a young person, I wasn't known for being much of a leader. I was a good follower, and I'll talk about that a little bit more later on in our time together. But uh, for one period of time in my life, uh, I was, for some reason, nominated to be a part of the National Junior Honor Society back in eighth grade of my junior high, and I was excited about being on stage with my fellow eighth graders that had been uh, uh, nominated and were being inducted into the National Junior Honor Society. And as you can see by the words there, we were being recognized for things like character, uh, scholarship, service, and citizenship, and this thing called leadership. And so after we got our little pin and the applause from the people, we had to make our way off the, uh, off the stage. And if you can imagine, uh, see if I can find the, the, yeah, okay, it doesn't show up on there very well. Okay, just imagine that's me on the edge, okay? I'm on the edge, and I had the privilege then to lead a portion of my class off the stage and back to where we needed to go. So I turned and left and went down and went up the aisle. And it was one of those types of aisles where you, you go up, so you're ascending. And so I'm imagining myself ascending this aisle with my classmates behind me, and we're making our way to the very end to where we can no longer have to be nervous because we're away from them. And I can turn around and high-five all my fellows. And only one person followed me. I was so discouraged, and she wasn't impressed either. <laughs> what I discovered at that particular time, that following is, uh, is an interesting thing. Now, I am glad. I am glad that I did not end up with the following that I anticipated, because it wouldn't stick with me for this many years, right? Uh, so I, I realized that, that following isn't always as you might think it would be. Pastor Zach Dietrich, when he was here a couple weeks ago, he introduced this concept of following and gave us this great uh, contrast with the following as having followers on our Instagram or Twitter or, or Facebook. And I just want to let you know we have 515 followers on our Facebook ministry page, in case you're curious. But one of the things I discovered as I looked at those 515 followers I posted today, I would be with you, and 14 people liked it. Now, why is it out of 500 of my followers, only 14 like the fact that I'm here? Maybe they're not following as closely as maybe I think. But this is kind of a segue into the idea of really what happened with Jesus. Jesus had many people that were, in a sense, followers, right? But we are most accustomed to the followers that were called his 12 disciples, or what we would know to become the apostles. And the exciting thing about doing a study in the Gospels is that you have so many different accounts of what takes place. And each, each author is used by God to give a particular flavor and aspect. But one of the difficulties with it is really putting together a good chronology and making sure you're doing things exactly the way it, uh, it was done at the time. But as we would look at this concept of of the disciples and how they interacted with Jesus, uh, 
as Zach had pointed out a couple weeks ago, Mark does things pretty tightly in his scheduling of uh, what the events were. And Mark is a pretty good one, so we're staying in the same Mark, uh, same gospel to look at these things that were interactive about these disciples. In uh, the chapter 1, verse 16, is where we have the very familiar, follow me and you will be fishers of men. We're, we're familiar with that one. And uh, that is also repeated in Matthew. Uh, Luke has a little different event, and I'm not sure if it's the same event or not, where, where the catch of the large, miraculous catch of fish for Peter, who had been uh, fishing all night long. Some will put that in that area as well. John doesn't mention this particular event. But next is we have 12 chosen. This is where he prays and selects the 12, and they name them. Okay, So you, that's where we start getting that 12 disciples from. And you see that takes place in uh, Mark chapter 3. By Mark chapter 6 is when Jesus sends them out. And he sends them out two by two. Now, I don't know about you, but I have somewhat of a curiosity and wonder who got stuck with Peter, okay? And I also have a curiosity and wonder who got stuck with Judas, you know? And I don't know if you've ever thought about that. At that time, and I'm fast-forwarding a little bit, but at the time when people wondered who would betray, someone spent some significant time with Judas, and it seems like they didn't have a clue. You know, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, I could imagine one of them going, eh, 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 you know. And then the next part is where Peter is confessing when Jesus asks, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? You're the Christ and, and such. And then the final one that I want to emphasize is right after that, according to Mark's account, is that really, you want to call it dropping the hammer as to what it means to be a a disciple, the commitment that it would take and such. And that is displayed in other ways by other of the uh, Gospels, etc. But this is kind of gives you an idea that there's a progression that takes place. And I've uh, recreated a chronology that you probably can't see as well. well. Actually, I can sort of read it. But if you, you look at this part that I've got uh, circled here, uh, you will notice this is the official call of the four fishermen. That was the Started with on the slide before, where, where Mark indicates the fact, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And if you look back up into this area right here, uh, you'll see a segment where actually uh, John talks about an ascent, if I could call it, a passing of baton for some of his disciples to become disciples of Jesus Christ. So in the chronology, it has to take place someplace, and uh, I've seen individuals try to place it down with the, with the other item, but I feel much more comfortable looking at it as something that's right after uh, John the Baptist has been talking about who the Lamb of God is, and we'll see that in our passage today. As, as we think through these, these items in that verse. And this, this is my emphasis on talking about the disciples or the followers this first time. When John the Baptist had followers, he was to be the front runner. How does he, in a sense, pass on that truth of who they should follow, and how do they respond to those elements. Now, I'm going to uh, show a video. It comes from Cam Campus Crusade. Uh, you might be familiar with the Jesus film. Uh, they have used that all over the world. It is translated into 1,800 languages. Uh, 
and it has been downloaded 175 million times, and I've downloaded it once, okay? And so I'm one of those 175 million. So, so God has been using this in a fantastic way to help people not only read the gospel, but to see and hear the gospel uh, in their own language all around the world, and people are responding to it well. But I chose it today because some of us are ones who could read a passage and visualize it in their mind as they go through it. Some of us will read the words and we see words, okay? And we put together concepts and we get the idea of what it is. But uh, for, for this morning, I want us to just simply look at this account. It takes about four minutes and it will be the passage that we're going to look at, but I wanted you to see it as the uh, kind of an artist's conception of what it might look like, and it might help us as we look through this together. The next day, John was standing there again with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus walking by. There's the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and went with Jesus. Jesus turned, saw them following him. What are you looking for? Uh, um, where do, where you, live? do you live? Rabbi. Rabbi. This word means teacher. Come and see. It was then about four o'clock in the afternoon, so they went with him and saw where he lived and spent the rest of that day with him. One of them was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Once he found his brother Simon. We have found the Messiah. This word means Christ. Then he took Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at him. Your name is Simon, son of John. But you will be called Cephas. This is the same as Peter and means a rock. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip. And said to him, Come with me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the town where Andrew and Peter lived.
Philip found Nathaniel. We have found the one whom Moses wrote about in the book of the law, and whom the prophets also wrote about. He is Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see. Video to to think about really what you see there. Now, one thing that I saw was a lot of energy, excitement, sometimes some some skepticism. Uh, I was uh, encouraged to think about what may have happened because as John gives the account, it's very very tight as far as what uh, is given as far as information. But if you imagine what it was like for these these individuals who had been followers of John the Baptist and had been hearing about this Messiah that's coming and to the thought that they finally found the one of what the scriptures taught and how that that impacted their lives. We want to look uh, at the at these uh, passages that are in John. If you want to turn to John chapter 1, verse 36 and following, we'll be looking at that portion of Scripture to see how was it that John the Baptist, as he was interacting with Jesus Christ, he had already baptized him sometime before, and now he was talking about him with his disciples, and this leads to a chain of events. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. The expression here is that John the Baptist had already been talking about this and the value of who the Lamb of God is and and how that that was so important. And all of a sudden, Jesus walks by. Uh, We call some of those things like divine appointments or or something along that line, where maybe God opens the door for us to be able to uh, share about Christ. Here's the situation. Jesus is walking by, and John shares with his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God. And as a result, they go and follow him. Let me look at just a few items that go along with this idea of them seeing him. It wasn't just the fact that, that... John the Baptist said, Behold, Uh, if you look, he talks about him being the one who takes away the sins of the world. We consider what our society is up against. It's not difficult for people to talk about how hopeless, how difficult, how horrible our society is. We have situations where the news feed will will throw up before us some despicable acts and such. And so the concept of sin being in the world should not be something that we have to convince people of. And the thought that there is someone that will take away the sins. And John talked about that. He also talked earlier in this uh, same passage as he was describing, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He also says, He's the one that ranks before me because he was before me. Now those that know the chronology, John the Baptist was born six months later. Jesus was born. Okay, And so as a result, when John the Baptist is talking about Jesus came before me, 
or Jesus was before me, at that he's emphasizing that Jesus is different than him, that he is not just a mere man. And the emphasis of that theological concept as well, the one I was to reveal, his whole point of being like that Elijah, as uh, Pastor Zach talked about a couple weeks ago, that, that he was the one to prepare the way And he's, again, reminding them of this. This is the one I was to reveal. And then John bore witness. And I saw, I use that phrase to to remind us that John the Baptist, as the forerunner, he witnessed the work of God as he, uh, you know, sent the dove down, as, the, as God came down as the dove upon Jesus, uh, this is my beloved son whom, whom I'm well pleased, and he bore witness of that, and I saw that, and he's talking about it, and he is the one who baptizes with the Spirit, and again, John says that I bore witness the son of, that he is the Son of God. So all these are some significant theological truths. It wasn't just an issue of here's someone that you should follow, uh, someone that you can have a good relationship with. There are some significant theological truths about who Jesus is and the impact that has on our lives as we consider this uh, this event of John the Baptist saying he's the Lamb of God. He is the one, and in a sense he's saying he's the one you should follow now. As they follow him, and they're running up behind Jesus as the video portrays, he says, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? Why are you following me? And, uh, and they ask him, well, where are you staying? Now, that might not be the most... Um, you know, most effective way to ask someone something. But basically, in their culture, there was a lot to the hosting. And if you came to someone's house, and you know, you remember Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. That was a significant thing. Where are you staying? Uh, we want to come where you are staying. It's, an, it's a way of being able to say, we want to be identified with you. We want to know more about you. We want to learn from you. And they use that word, rabbi. As they were saying, we want to line ourselves up underneath your teaching. And it says that they stayed with him that day. They call him rabbi teacher. They saw where he was staying. And they stayed for the day until about 4 p.m. And then Andrew had had enough. Now, I don't think Andrew had a short attention span. He says, I can't take any more of that. I think what had happened is that he had such a welling up in his heart of realizing that what John the Baptist had been saying about who this great man is, the one whose uh, uh, shoes he could not unloose, or, or, or whatever else he said about his following him, that Andrew had heard enough. And so it says that Andrew first found his brother, Simon. We have found the Messiah, Christ. This is the message that uh, Andrew is bringing to Simon. We have found the Christ. We have found the one who has been prophesied from the scriptures, and he is the one. We have found him. And Peter, now I don't know about you, as as I look at this account, I'm thinking, is this the same Peter that's in the rest of the New Testament? I don't know if you noticed that as you saw that, because the, the Peter that I know of the New Testament uh, would have been talking the whole way there, and as soon as Jesus said something, he'd have some kind of rebuttal to it, uh, for, you know, as far as the idea, you'll be called Peter, and you're like, what? 
Why do I need to be called Peter? I'm, I'm Simon, you know, or whatever might be his, his potential response. But he, Jesus tells them, you will be called Cephas, and we'll, that'll come into play later on, and we see that uh, explored more in detail in Matthew chapter 16 as, as Peter and Jesus have that interchange, and the concept of him being the rock is more uh, evident what that means. But in this scenario, according to John's account, Peter didn't have anything to say. He just says, huh. And I think that's interesting. So they had time with Jesus, and it seems like the time with Jesus gives us a chance to know Jesus. Uh, When he was done uh, that day, Andrew was convinced that he was the Messiah. When uh, uh, then then the next thing we know that uh, he does, uh, time with others is the way I say it, time with others is why we should be sharing with Jesus. The first person that Andrew wanted to go to was someone he was really close with, someone he'd already spent some time with. Too often we think of evangelism as being that time where we go try to find someone we don't know and be able to share the gospel. And I think those are very important opportunities to be able to share. But in this case, you see the immediate thing is is to find someone that we've already shared time with, someone that we care about. And apparently, Andrew cared a lot about his brother. And he brought him to Jesus. Now, as I think about, I put on there the changer of names. The changer of names. If you look through the Old Testament, there's many times where people's names were changed. Abraham and Sarah were originally called Abram and Sarai. And they were such as they named in uh, Genesis chapter 11. And by the time they've gone through those events that lead up to that major commitment or covenant that God is making with them, at that point then God says, I'm changing your name. You're going to be Abraham and you're going to be Sarah. I think of the wrestling that Jacob had with God, the angel, and when he was done, your name is no longer going to be Jacob, but it's going to be Israel. And there was some significance to that. You even see those who were not God or those who were others in authority where Daniel's name uh, was changed when he went into captivity. And even Joseph's name, when he was brought up uh, Joseph in, the, uh, in Egypt, when he was brought up out of the prison and given the opportunity to be one of the leaders, his name was changed as well. And you see that as being some significant thing, that when Peter was, uh, was approached by Jesus, and the one thing he says, well, you're, you're, you're Simon, son of John, he knew who he was, he says, but you're going to be. And even in that, what that communicates, who Jesus is. Jesus, in a sense, the life changer. The one who changes name. The one who gives us other uh, opportunities and other hope. Now, the next day it says that Jesus found Philip. And uh, he says to Philip, follow me. Very different in the situation where the day before... Jesus was walking along, and you had Andrew and another disciple. Uh, Assumption is that's John, because John, when he talks about a disciple with no name, that's usually him. And so this time, though, Jesus goes to uh, Philip, and he says, follow me. And the next thing that we know that Philip does, he goes and gets his friend Nathaniel. 
And he says, we have found whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. When I read that, I thought immediately of this little book right here. Some of you are probably familiar with the book. It's called The Stranger on the Road to Emmaus. And the, the, the premise of this book is that there was a time in the New Testament after Jesus was resurrected that he spent some time with two individuals as he walked with them on the road to Emmaus. And it says that while he walked with them, he explained to them how that the, the law or the writings of Moses and the prophets spoke about him. And this is a fantastic book to give us a kind of a summary, not only of what the scriptures say, but to continually to remind us that the, that the Bible is not segmented into an Old Testament that shows one type of God and a New Testament that shows a different type of God. That the same grace and mercy and the same glorifying of God and the same purpose of God is true all the way through the scriptures. And this book does an excellent job of collating those critical stories and helping people see how that from the writings of Moses to the writings of the prophets, they all pointed to the wonderful truth of the Messiah. We use this to be able to share particularly with those that are either new believers or those that we would call pre-believers to give them an opportunity to understand what, what Jesus is talking about here. Now, when Philip came to Nathaniel, that's how he introduced Jesus. The one who is talked about, the one who is spoken of in the, by Moses, law and the prophets so again we get another glimpse of how that it's not just a come and hear a guy that seems to make a whole lot of sense or come and hear a guy who's worth following but here is someone who fulfills what God has written about in the Old Testament and that's all they had at that time but written in the scriptures so that they could know that what they were experiencing was a unique but yet a miraculous thing that God had talked about a long, long time before. And, of course, uh, Nathaniel's famous response uh, when, he saw, when he's introduced as Jesus of Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And uh, rather than just simply getting stuck on that statement, Philip says, well, come and see. And isn't that really a lot of times what we're really encouraging people when we're attempting to introduce them to the one we love, the one that we believe in, the one we know to be the miraculous uh, fulfillment of the, the truth of Scripture, the one who is our personal Savior, is we want people to have a chance to see. We want them to be able to look into the Scriptures and be able to see who He is and how that makes a difference in their lives. And as we know from the account that Nathaniel ends up going there, uh, but we see here, again, time with Jesus helps us to know Jesus. We know that he was prophesied uh, from the interaction with Nathaniel. Uh, we, we know that, that uh, Nathaniel, let me just uh, read that, that passage there in, in John. I should have to give us uh, an idea of what, what he says there. 
when they interact with each other. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and he said to him, behold an Israel indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. So in that quick little interchange between uh, Nathanael and Jesus, he's willing to call him the Son of God and recognize that, that important title of being God himself. And then Jesus says, you believe that with that little? You're going to see so much more. You're going to see so much more. You're going to, as he says that, he says, Jesus answered, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so we have Nathaniel really recognizing the role of Jesus as the one who is prophesied, seeing him as the Son of God, and seeing him also as, as the Son of Man. The time with others is when uh, Andrew, or excuse me, when Philip spent time enough with, uh, with Jesus, he knew he had to go and spend time with Nathaniel and share with him. And I love the way that the, uh, the film depicts it. I don't know exactly what happened that time, but taking consideration their culture and how that they interact and, and how that they uh, valued certain things and responded to certain things, I can almost imagine that hearing the information, getting excited about it, and actually running to go do something. We don't run to do a lot of things, do we? Uh, we're, we're pretty, pretty uh, not running, okay? Uh, now, I, I like to, when I'm in the crosswalk, I kind of like to go a little quicker. But have you ever noticed sometimes when you come to a crosswalk, the person just decides to slow down because they see you and you got that left turn thing going and you can't, uh, and, they, and they slow down. But the, but the idea that I imagine with them doing this, uh, to run with such enthusiasm to be able to share what we know. I appreciate how Pastor Kyle uh, unfolded the woman at the well story and, and the emphasis on that in worship and what is it that we value and what is it that's going to be the answer to our lives. And we will be kind of looking at how that discipleship kind of is a progression. But this woman was what I would call in the very raw state of discipleship. She's not one you would have put in charge of your ladies' ministry or something of that matter, okay? But she was actively involved with what she knew. I mean, she didn't know that much about Jesus. She was a Samaritan. She didn't have the background that Philip and Andrew and Peter and Nathaniel would have had. They, she hadn't spent time with John the Baptist to get all this information in regard to it. But what she did is she took to the people she cared about the amount of information that she had. And I want to exhort us to think about this as we look at the various stages in which we might uh, find ourselves that we ought to, regardless of where we are in the growth cycle of a disciple, want to be able to share as much as we can share about who Jesus is. I have a story about what, uh, what happened, transpired for me when I was a young man. I told you I was a good follower. 
I didn't always make good decisions who I would follow. And so there's three different people that were in my life, and they're all associated with whether or not they were going to lead me to be connected with Jesus or not. So that's what is relevant about it. The first one was a, a young man, a couple of years older than me, and he was an excellent leader. Uh, he could boss anybody around, okay? He was really good at that. Uh, we worked together on building a tree fort, and uh, uh, he got to do all the stuff, and I got to do whatever he told me to do. So I, I followed him in a lot of practical ways, but I also realized he was one that was one of the kids that promoted himself as one who went to church. His, uh, his family went to church kind of regularly, but I noticed something about his family is they didn't seem to act like it was impacting their life much at all because they made some of the same decisions and some worse than, than mine. As a matter of fact, this is the young man that tried to teach me how to smoke and how to drink and, and uh, how to steal things out of gardens and, and all those type of things. And uh, he, uh, I think he taught me a few words I shouldn't have been using. Uh, but he was a kind of a mentor to me in that regard. And I remember the day when as I traveled with his family and so grateful that they took me under his, their wing to be able to do something but they stopped for church, and they said, Scott, do you want to come in with us to church? Now, i got to tell you, at that stage of my life, I was hungry to be able to find something out about God. Uh, prior to that time, I'd even asked my mom to drop me off at a church so I could go to Sunday school or something, and she did that uh, so that I could have some exposure. That didn't last very long. I wasn't uh, really uh, connecting with at that point, but I really wanted to go, but because of that lack of consistency in their life, I said, I, I really don't want to go there because I don't really want to get what you got, okay? Contrast that to the person who lived on the other side of me. Totally different family. This family was very consistent. Uh, they were ones that I would call uh, very prim and proper. Uh, I would never find my friend, also a little older than me, doing anything in disobedience to his parents. I would never hear him saying any words that were inappropriate. They not only went to church on a regular basis, but they went to a private school that was in a church on a regular basis. And as, as I observed them as a person that was outside the whole church scene and noticed it, I couldn't think of anything that I could have ever imagined them sinning in any fashion. But I could not imagine them smiling either. I couldn't imagine them having much joy in their life. And I realize some of us have resting faces that don't smile a lot. But I'm talking about people that I knew on a regular basis and they were very consistent. And if they talked about church or they talked about anything, there was no enthusiasm. I could not see anything emanate from their life at all that gave me the impression that what they were doing was impacting their life in a way that made it anything more uh, than good practice. God took me away from that neighborhood, and I was so disappointed. I was very upset because that was where all the neighborhood I knew. But my mom wanted to go across town, be in a different house, go in a different neighborhood, and I could not see the value of it all. I had no friends that I could count on, and as a result... I, as a somewhat insecure person to begin with, to make new friends was going to be a significant challenge. But in that time, God brought me, brought into my life, just through a random assignment, you know, that's the, those old group assignments things, I always hated them, uh, that and uh, group participation, Ugh. you know, th all those things were horrible for me. Uh, but uh, this was one that turned out for the good. This young man, 
not only helped me get the project done, because he was not only good at research, but he was good at art, and I just kind of went along, like I said, I was a good follower, uh, and uh, we got the project done, but one thing he did is he allowed me to be a part of his friendship circle, and another one of his friends happened to be the the son of the pastor of the church where they went to. And those two guys decided to side me and to integrate their life with mine, with all the uh, problems and issues and such that I had. But what I saw as I watched their lives, I saw the, uh, uh, the enthusiasm they had for life, like my first friend, but it really wasn't in the context of God. But I also saw the determination that they had aligned themselves underneath a God that they wanted to please, and they cared a lot about that. And one of the experiences that I hang on to is I recall coming over to this one of my friend's house as his dad would lead in prayer as we ate the meal and just see him interact with his family and listen to him laugh. And I, and I got to, I got to say, that not, that's not you know, laughing evangelism or anything or something like that, but I, I got to say, I saw in someone that seemed to be genuine and real that Jesus was real to them. They were serious about it. And when they invited me to church, I was not only willing to go, I was excited to go. And they invited me in their life first, and then they invited me to join their other friends, and as a result, God in his grace allowed me to come to know Jesus as my personal Savior back when I was 13 years old. And it's been exciting to see how that God has, has continued to, to work in my life to help me grow and mature because there's a lot to make up. And as we transition to this last aspect of what we're going to talk about this morning is that as you look at what Jesus has done with his disciples that you see some aspect of an intentional and sequential work with them, and you'll see that borne out in the rest of the New Testament. For about 15 years ago, um, I started working with a group called TNET International. I wasn't officially working with them. I was aligning myself up with them, and they were doing some training with me, and I did some shadowing with the, uh, um, the president, and he did some consultation, and I saw how he'd come alongside churches and help them. But his major emphasis was on intentional discipleship training. And I loved the uh, material that they had, and I became an uh, instructor for that and used that in what we call the intentional discipleship training at the I Association of Regular Baptist Churches, as I was one of the trainers back in uh, 2005 through 2008. And uh, one of the quotes out of the materials is about an A.B. Bruce. And it says this, in 1871, A.B. Bruce published his classic book, The Training of the Twelve. In the foreword to this book, Bruce stated that, that in his training, Jesus carried his disciples through several sequential and distinctly different training phases. Each phase had a different dynamic and intent. Each one built upon the last. I mentioned that we spent time, seven years, at Blair Ridge Baptist Church in Cedar Rapids. For one period of time, we as a leadership team took all of the New Testament and spread it out between us, and we looked through the New Testament to see what were those indicators of a disciple. 
And I had some men who were much more organized than me take care of some of this stuff. But they were, we were able to collate that and put it together and we developed what we called the definition of a disciple and showed the progression that you see in the scriptures that there are certain things that this disciple might be uh, benefited from that this one wouldn't in and, and their, and their process of their growth. And I did, I'll diagram it somewhat like this. And again, the words that I use on the, on the side of the ladder are not the critical thing, but that's just some words that I put out there generically. But the, the concept, as you look through the New Testament and the Gospel and even in the epistles, you'll see that you have the obvious one, the potential disciples. Those are what we would call the unbelievers or those that are, are, are really out there and we're trying to figure out whether or not Jesus is the real thing. But after that, you have this concept of a growing follower or uh, maybe uh, the concept of an interested follower or invested follower is another way to say it. And then from there, it goes into the impacting follower. And I use the word impacting just simply because that could be serving or ministering or in some fashion, we are willing to not only think about Jesus and how he relates to ourselves, we're wanting to see how that Jesus would use me to impact other people. And then finally, we, we get to the point where now we're not only be disciple, make disciple, that we see our role at, at training other people to, to make disciples. And that's the progression that we, we see in the scriptures and that we as a church put together as what our goal was, is to recognize that there are, there are certain things that those who are potential followers really need to know and understand. And there are certain things that once you get up to the multiplying follower that they need that maybe the ones down below wouldn't be helped by and in the process of their, of their growth and their relationship. And I want to close with this concept here is sometimes uh, we find that as a church and even in our own lives, we are not progressing in the way in which we should be progressing. We can get what we call stuck. Stuck at one of those areas. And I want to just suggest that you think through how are you doing in your progression as a disciple? How are you doing at your following how are you doing in this? Are you, are you seeing yourself moving in a direction that you know is going to be pleasing to God and useful to the body? And as, as we think through this, we can talk about, and we will talk about this, part of my responsibilities as a consultant is to talk about what are we putting in as proper uh, ministries and opportunities for people to be able to do this. And we'll talk about that aspect, but I'm talking now about what we own. What do I own as an individual? I can talk all I want about what I wish the church would have done or would do to help me do what I need to do. But when we stand before Jesus Christ, he's going to be more interested in what effort did we individually put forth in our growing to be like Jesus Christ, in our following Jesus Christ. And as you look at that and just ask the question, am I stuck on one of these rungs? And if I'm stuck on one of these rungs, what am I wanting to do and willing to do? And sometimes we don't know what to do, but the question is, are we willing to seek help and get some direction on how to move into the next one? And as a church, as we church leaders, we look at that and we say, what have we done? Have we put some rungs at some place that makes it difficult for people to reach certain places? Are we having difficulty helping that pre-follower, if you would, 
jump in with what we're doing? Or are we providing adequate entrance for someone who might be a potential new believer and follower? Or is there, as I've seen often in churches, where there will be initial, initial reaching, initial training, and then kind of, well, just, just hope you get it until we want to use you as a leader somewhere down the road. And you've got some big gaps of rungs where people are now going from, okay, I've got some general information, but there's no sequential, intentional training to prepare me to eventually be able to move up into the impacting and multiplying aspect. And we need to look at it from our perspective. What do I need to do so I'm on that track? And also as a church, we need to look at what do we need to put into place to help that come together. Well, as I said earlier, I'm really excited to be here. And I'm excited to be able to come alongside you. And I realize it won't last long. God has a man planned for you to come in and lead you in your disciple-making and, uh, and in your glorifying God and training you. But we are thrilled to come alongside you and look forward to what God might do. Father, as we close our time together, I pray for each one us here. There could very well be someone here that as they think through this, they have not really trusted you as their personal Savior. They've enjoyed maybe the fellowship, they've enjoyed the friendships, they've enjoyed some of the programs here, but when it comes down to them really being able to answer the question, is Jesus Christ their personal Savior, they may have doubt in regard to that. They may not know. And Father, our desire is for them to have that joy and to have that hope and to have that confidence. And we ask, Lord, that you would provide an opportunity for them to bring someone alongside them, to talk with them, to give them uh, guidance in regard to who you are so they can have a personal relationship with you. Lord, I pray for others that um, maybe today's message might give them an idea that the whole discipleship process isn't as enthusiastic as what they saw in the video. Maybe the concern for other people isn't as enthusiastic as they saw in the video. Maybe the intentionality, or whatever it might be, or maybe we just feel stuck. Lord, I pray that this time of transition doesn't have to be a time where, where the people here just stay stuck. God, my desire is that they might flourish and that they will do, continue to be pleasing you and growing and sharpening one another. And oh, how that would be such a, an exciting place to invest as a pastor. And God, I pray that uh, you allow us to work together to that end. And uh, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.